How many of you, uh, maybe just by a show of hands, how many of you keep a, a calendar of some kind? All right, we'll just get your hand up in the room a moment, all right? We all probably keep a calendar. You keep some notes, some post-it notes at least. You've got your system, right? Because life is busy, kids are busy, so many different things going on. Let's uh, look at like How many of you keep an electronic calendar? Uh, maybe with your phone or a desktop, all right? That's what I do. I mean, that works best for me with personal work stuff, all of it. But I just think for fun, how many of you are still old-fashioned paper calendar? Like, that works best for you. Get your hand up. You don't have to be ashamed, you know. They, they say you're activating different portions of your brain, right? When you're writing things down, it's good to write those down. And even in doing that, uh, sometimes we can remember, uh, remember better. Life is busy, right? Life's busy, so we write things down. Again, lots of important dates that you don't want to miss. For our family, this has been a summer of really important dates, okay, some significant things going on uh, in our life. Joel had a birthday on May the 30th, graduated from high school uh, on June the 7th. Kate had a birthday on June the 30th. Jenny and I had our 24th wedding anniversary on August the 1st. The next big date on our calendar is August 18th because our oldest son is going off to college. He's going off to Taylor University. Some of you have done that before. You've sent kids off to college. This is brand new territory uh, for us, and we're excited about it, but also it's a little emotional uh, too. But you, you've got some important dates that maybe we share, like we share the August 1st date, and not because it was my anniversary, but because if you've got kids in Noblesville schools, August 1 was the date uh, our kids went back to school school. Uh, if you're an HSE uh, student or in the HSE school district, it was August 3rd for you. Uh, August 9th, right? If you're Hamilton Heights school, that's coming up this week, the 10th. For Carmel, I was looking. Westfield on the 11th. Like you've had these dates on the calendar, especially moms and dads. Yes, we have been looking at that date. We cannot wait for that date to come around. If you homeschool, a uh, really good chance you've picked out a date. If you haven't started already, where you're going to resume classes with your kids again. It's not just school. It's not just birthdays or anniversaries as important as those dates are. Uh, maybe you're thinking about retirement. Maybe you've set a date, all right, and that's what's driving you. That's the only thing keeping you going right now is you know that your retirement date is on the way. Some of you can't wait for Sunday, September 11th. Why? The NFL regular season kicks off, all right? So if you're a Colts fan or whoever you root for, uh, you're looking forward to that, that first Sunday. Dates are an important part of life. Let me ask you this, and I don't mean to get all morbid on you, but I'm going to change directions for just a moment. I promise there's a point. But do you ever think about the day you're going to die? I mean, if we all get one life, we get so many days. I mean, the Bible says that God has ordained every single day of your life. Like death, whether we like it or not, is a regular part of life. We all lose people we love, and sometimes that happens abruptly and tragically, like the honorable police officer from Elwood who lost his life and uh, his celebration of his life yesterday. Other times, death is one of those things that comes into our lives after many years, and certainly while hard, I mean, it doesn't always make it any easier. You know, if there's been many years associated with that life, at least it makes a little more sense, all right? It feels more natural. I don't like to think about death. I don't like to talk about death. I mean, really, who does? But sometimes we can't help it, right? Especially if we go through some things. You go through an event. Uh, something happens in your family. It gets us wondering, like, well, what is it for me? How many days do I get? Um, you know, what, what, what's God's plan for my life? And 
and what's on the other side of it all. As strange as it might sound, Jesus actually talked a lot about his death. Talked about it a lot, and, and for the record, he was looking forward to it. And some of us are like, huh, like really? Like why was he looking forward to it? Now don't get me wrong, like the thought of his death stressed him out, I and mean, we're going to see some of that emotion in Jesus even today. Uh, and so it, it stressed him out, it caused some current concern just like it does for, for the rest of us. But somehow Jesus was able to see and understand that his death, his life, was an important part, an extremely important part of God's plan for this world. And when you hear that, you might think to yourself, well, of course that's true of Jesus. I mean, he was the the, the Son of God. Of course, he's an important part of, of God's plan. I mean, he's, again, he's Jesus for heaven's sake. But here's what I want us to see today. I want us to see how Jesus understood the critical role that his death played in carrying out God's redemptive plan for humanity. And at the same time, what I pray that you and I might see is how his death provides for us an example for how we see our lives, how we see our purpose our mission and our time here in this world. And so uh, if you've got your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 12, uh, the fourth book of the New Testament, halfway through the Bible, John chapter 12. Um, back in January, we launched uh, this initiative, this event in our church that we're calling Grow, where the goal is to read through the, the book of, of John together as a church family. We're studying it here on Sundays. And so from January through May, if you've been around, you know, we took our time reading and studying John chapters 1 through 12. We took a little bit of a break for the summer, and today we're going to pick it up in John chapter 12, kind of hanging out around verse 20. But before we dive in, I want to give you a quick overview of some of the things that we've covered so far. Like we learned way back in January, we learned that the gospel of John can basically be divided into two parts, that there's uh, John chapter 1 through 12, which is sometimes referred to as the, the book of signs. Scholars will call it the book of signs. And then there's John chapters 13, 13 through 20 that are known as the book of glory. And the book of signs include the, the signs or miracles that Jesus performed uh, really during that three and a half years of ministry that he had. These, these miracles or signs serve as indicators or, or signs that demonstrate God's power at work through Jesus and just continue to reveal him as God, God's long-awaited Messiah to this world. Well, today through November, really through Thanksgiving, we're turning the corner into what some scholars called the book of glory, all right? That's John chapters 13 through 20. And while the book of signs, get this, covered the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, for the next few months, we're really kind of focusing in on the last week of his life. All right, the final days of Jesus' life. These next chapters include events like Palm Sunday and the Last Supper and Jesus' gut-wrenching prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial, his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And we'll see in just a moment that these chapters are referred to as the book of glory because they include the emotional details that lead to his death, but also to his resurrection, to his life, which ultimately results in his glorification as God's son and our savior. And so that's a quick recap of where we've been. And if you'd like to catch up with anything we've been working through along the way, we keep those on, uh, on our website. You can check that out on our media. There's videos you can watch as well. Uh, we're gonna pick up with John chapter 13 next week. Here's what I'd encourage you to do this week. And I left it on my seat down there, but maybe you got a bookmark when you came in, which is our reading plan for this series. Use this week as a review week in your reading. Um, I'd even challenge you to read John chapters one through 12. Do it in one sitting. 
All right, if you're really bold, do it every day. All right, read John 1 through 12 every day through next Sunday and just refamiliarize yourself with these first chapters of John or maybe for the first time. And uh, we're going to talk about an event that's coming up tomorrow night that can help you in your own personal study, study what you do when you're away from here and how you read the scriptures and what you can do with those. Steve will talk about that before we go. I've been praying two prayers for our church. Here's what I've been praying. Number one, that God would use this time to grow our faith in Christ for every person, all right, every single one of us, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, that God would use this to grow your faith in Jesus. But secondly, I've also been praying that God will use this to grow us as a church family, that together as we read and as we study the word of God, we'll just keep growing closer and closer together as a church family because God can do really great things when that happens. Let me, let me pray for us before we continue on. Father in heaven, thank you again for this time today. Uh, thank you for being here with us, for your presence. Most importantly, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray and ask, Lord, that as we continue to read and study through John, that you would grow us in our faith. I want to grow in my faith. I want want you to grow the faith of every person here. But secondly, Lord, that you'll also use this to grow us closer together as a church family. We, We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another and certainly to this community that you have called us to. And so we open ourselves to you and we give this time to you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at John 12, but let me tell you about John 11 real quick. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus performed his really probably greatest miracle in raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, which was amazing, would have been amazing to witness uh, for anyone. But by the end of chapter 11, we learn that the religious leaders of the day hated him even more because of it. And so they were determined that it was time to crucify him. Chapter 12 begins with a huge party in Jesus' honor at Lazarus' house. Because if someone raises you from the dead, you ought to at least throw a party and provide a lot of good food. All right, and so they did just that. And then throwing this party ultimately led to a celebration that carried over into the streets that we pick up in John chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what the disciple John records. He says, the next day, that is the next day after this party, the great crowd that had come for the festival, which was likely the Passover, which was the Passover festival uh, celebrated in Jerusalem. It says, they came for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, and if you know the story, you know the celebration, they shouted, Hosanna, Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. We know this as Palm Sunday. It's the day Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. In about five days, Jesus will be crucified on the cross, but not before this triumphal entry. The people lined the streets. They knew of Jesus. They were hearing about him. They heard of this miracle with Lazarus. So they've come out along the streets. They're waving their palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna as a way of expressing their desire to make Jesus their king. Let's keep reading, skipping over to verse 17. John writes, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, they went out to meet him. They've come to the streets. Again, they're shouting. 
we also read that the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders of the day, said to one another, see, this is getting out of hand. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going crazy about him. Think about this. Jesus had everything going for him. His popularity was increasing. Uh, He was already popular before, but now more so after raising Lazarus from the dead. Again, the people are in the streets. They're ready to make him king. This is where the story gets really interesting and where most of our time is going to be spent today because in verse 20, John also writes this. He says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Again, the Greeks, many believe that as many of them as a million people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. John wants us to know there were Greeks who went up to Jerusalem for this. They went to, the Greeks did, to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with the request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip ultimately in turn told Jesus. Now, notice how John points out this group of people that he simply refers to as the Greeks. According to Dr. Gary Burge, Greek here is simply a label for people who are not Jewish, all right? They're they're people who have encountered or heard about Jesus along the way, curious about him, but again, they're not Jewish people. We often refer to these people as the Gentiles, and it's not just a random detail. All right, and that's what I want to make very clear. This isn't just some random detail by John. It really is a huge catalyst to Jesus' story because up to this point in time, the crowds following Jesus were primarily made up of Jewish people that were looking to Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. But John the disciple is letting us know. He wants to make sure that we realize that people outside of Judaism are now also coming to Jesus, which is actually something Jesus had predicted a few chapters earlier in John chapter 10. We looked at this text back in the spring when Jesus referred to himself in this way. John chapter 10, listen to what he said. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. But this is where it gets really interesting and what connects to what we're looking at today. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock, and there shall be one shepherd. The point that Jesus is making is that he hasn't just come to be the good shepherd for the Jewish people, but that he has come to be shepherd for everyone, for all people. So when he says, I have sheep, other sheep, not of this sheep pen, he's preparing his Jewish followers, he's preparing his disciples And really, you and me, to realize that this movement he is starting is open and available to anyone. And it really is a powerful reminder, if you'll let it, as we see, as we're reminded once again that Jesus came and gave his life for all people, everyone. And that means even people that you might not like. Uh, that, that one person that you don't quite understand, that, that Jesus came for every person. He came for male or female, young or old. Jesus came for every person of every skin color. Uh, he came for every person of every nationality. He came for Republican or Democrat. Jesus came for all people. And maybe one of the greatest struggles 
that you've had with Jesus or the church or Christianity is that you might say, I don't feel like I fit the mold. I, I'm not a church person. I, I have different political opinions that are often associated with, with Christianity. Guess what? Jesus came for you too. He came for you as well. And the good news about Jesus is that you don't have to clean up your life first. Like, uh, he doesn't require that we get it all sorted out, that we get it all put back together. The only thing that matters is that we see him for who he really is and, and what he's accomplished and what he'd ultimately like to do, not only in your life, but in my life as well. And so I just want to say this. If, if you're trying to figure out life, if you've got some questions about where we go from here or, or death or any of the of those things. If you're curious about Jesus, I, I want to invite you uh, to come and join us these next few months as we just continue to dig deeper and deeper into the life of Jesus and read and listen and learn for yourself. I want to invite you to get into a connection group. We'll talk more about those over the next few weeks and meet some people who probably aren't a lot different than, than you are. Jesus invites anyone and everyone to come to him. Now, it does mean he's going to require, he expects that I lay down some things. That's a work that he continues to do in my life and all of our lives. But he offers his life for you. He died for you. God raised him from the dead for you and for me, and he invites us to follow him in this world. If you keep reading, you're, you'll realize that these Greeks coming to see Jesus has everything to do with what happens next. Let's read it again. <clears throat> John points out in verse 20, says, again, they're Greeks. They're coming to the festival. They want to see Jesus. So they go to the disciples first, and eventually they turn to Jesus and say, hey, these Greeks, these people are here to see you. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. John records it like this. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. One of the consistent themes that has come up over and over again in the first 12 chapters of John is this idea of Jesus' time or his hour coming. It's first mentioned in, in chapter 2. You remember this? The story of, of the wedding, the wine runs out. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus, tells them they've run out of wine. Jesus replies to her by saying, my time, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7 and 8, the religious leaders get angry with Jesus and his teachings, and on both occasions, they try and capture him, but both times John simply replies that no one was able to lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. But now as he's entering into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry, all right, the Jews are ready to make him king. The Greeks are curious about who he is, and Jesus says, finally, my time, my hour has come. David Guzik, he has provided this teach, or, uh, study resource some of you maybe looked at called the Enduring Word Commentary. He points out that the phrase, the hour has come, is in the perfect tense and can be translated as the hour has come and stays with us. In other words, the time is here and there's no looking back now. There's no turning back. Well, what time has come? Well, let's look back again at verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you read that phrase or you think about Jesus being glorified. I can't help but think about athletic celebrations, you know, that we see on TV every day or in videos or in uh, 
replays or whatever that may be. One of my favorites. Do you remember this? Maybe you've seen it before. It depends on how old you were, but are. But uh, do you remember the name Maurice Green? Uh, Maurice Green was a U.S. track star, a world record holder for a time in the 100. There's this race that he competed in. You can watch it today. Go look it up. Uh, he, he wins the race. He wins the 100 and he immediately runs back to the finish line. He rips off his spikes. He throws them on the ground. This guy that was planted comes running out with a fire extinguisher and just extinguishes them off as they act like, you know, they're on fire. It's pretty cool. You have to watch it if you've never seen that before. That's not what glorified here means, all right? That's not what Jesus is thinking. That's not what the Father's thinking, all right? He, he says the hour, Jesus says the hour has come to be glorified, but the reality is that in the next 24 hours or so, he'd be arrested, beaten, and crucified, and he knew that was the case. But he also knew that his hour had come, and again, there's no turning back. And so he continues in verse 24, saying, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. We'll, we'll come back to these words in just a moment. But here's what we see. Jesus knew that his death date was approaching. And he wanted everyone, Jews and non-Jews alike, to know that the result of his death would bring eternal life for anyone who would put their faith and hope and trust in him. And at the same time, he also knew and realized that his death was going to be painful. That there would be pain as a result of this death. Look at Jesus' words in verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. Now make no mistake, while faithful and while trusting, Jesus knew that his death meant pain. He, he knew as we're going to read over these next chapters, that the cross meant agony and humiliation, but it was for this agony that he came to the earth. And it's verses like these. They're easy to pass over quickly, but they remind us that Jesus wasn't just some superhero in disguise. Was he God? Yes, in every way. He was fully God, but we also believe that he was fully human too, that he had no sin in his life. All right, but that he experienced many of the same things that you and I experience every day because the scriptures make it very clear that he was fully human, that he suffered, that he wrestled with fear, that he looked with anxiety in the eyes of others. He agonized over the thought of pain and suffering. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that Jesus, he understands our weaknesses because he faced many of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. And for those reasons then, we can conclude that he understands, that, that he gets us, that he, he understands my fears, that he understands my anxieties. He, he sympathizes with us when we go through difficult times and when there's loss in our lives. I preached at our Carmel campus two weeks ago. 
Uh, I was driving home after the service, and I got a call from my sister telling me that my dad was having stroke-like symptoms uh, and on his way to the ER. And so I quickly got home. I had some lunch fast. I packed a bag, and I was on my way to Springfield, Illinois, where my parents live and, and where I grew up. By Sunday evening, we were sitting with my dad in the ER when the doctor let us know that my dad wasn't having a stroke but that instead he has a brain tumor on the front left side of his brain. And uh, by Tuesday, uh, again, this is about a week and a half ago, my dad was in surgery for removal of the tumor. I'm pleased to say that by Friday he was doing so well uh, that they released him and sent him home. He's been recovering at home now for over a week uh, with my mom, and, uh, and my sisters live there in the area as well. I was able to remain in Springfield uh, with my parents and with my sisters for about a week. Uh, it was really good to be there and to be with them during that time. It's been uh, difficult. Uh, it's been pretty emotional. Uh, it's been a little terrifying and frightening. I've never been through anything like this, and some of you have. You've done this. Um, maybe you're living in something like this right now, and if you have, you know how emotional and how frightening it can be. And I can't tell you uh, how grateful I am for our elders, our leaders here at Genesis, our staff who really encouraged me not to rush back and gave me time to be there and knowing that I'm going to need time over uh, the coming months to, to go and be with my family. I'm so thankful for so many of you that knew about this, that have encouraged me and sent texts and have prayed for me and for my family. Uh, your words have been so encouraging and so helpful, and the Lord is using them. My parents are a part of a great ch church community uh, in the Springfield, Illinois area. It's been so humbling uh, to sit on the other side. You know, I, as a pastor, uh, I've had one angle and have participated, you know, with, with loss and difficult times with families, but now to, to be in the position where I've been on the receiving end and, and watched my, my parents' church family uh, with their visits, their words, their meals, and really just to see how special a church family can really be for one another. I'm reminded of the important role that we play as a church and again, how important it is to have a church family. And I'm really thankful for Jesus and my relationship with him. And I wish I could say it's perfect. It's not. I wish I could say I don't stumble because I do. I mean, I've had some low moments. Um, again, I've had some frightening moments when my mind goes a million different directions and ends up in the worst case sort of scenario. It sneaks up on you at times, doesn't it? And uh, my dad will start having chemo and radiation soon. Um, unfortunately, it is an aggressive cancer. Um, and so he has a really difficult road ahead of him. And, and well, we all do. Um, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, because Jesus suffered, he gets us. He understands us. And because he suffered, you know, uh, so much of what we suffered, like his love and his ability to relate with us is, is even greater. And Hebrews goes on to explain how Jesus learned obedience through his suffering, that even as the fear and the anticipation increased, his determination was to obey God and to trust him, to trust him no matter what. No matter what. Look, look what else Jesus said. He says, my, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And John records, no, it was for this very reason Jesus replied that I came to this hour. There's that word hour again. Like Jesus knew he had come to die. 
and that his death was close. He even admitted that his soul was in turmoil because of it. But he's also letting us know that he's trusting the Father. He's putting his faith in God, and he intends on trusting the Father to the very end. I want to be faithful no matter what comes, no matter what life holds. I'm determined to trust God, but I just need you to know I might need your help along the way with it. Um, I want to encourage you, no matter what it is in your life, no matter what you're going through, whether it be a health-related issue, a relationship issue, something you've been dealing with for a long time or maybe just a short period of time, like make up your mind to be faithful and to trust God no matter what it might be, no matter what you may face. And Lord Jesus, help us. Will you help us to be faithful and to trust you through it all? Look at Jesus' response to this reality, the reality of the hour coming. Verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then, then a voice came from heaven. He says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Interestingly, Jesus or God isn't going to just glorify himself through the resurrection, as important as that is. He's been glorifying himself. He glorified himself, first of all, when he sent Jesus to this world, the incarnation. That was bringing glory to himself. He brought and has been bringing glory to himself through all of the teachings and doings and miracles of Jesus, but he's going to bring a glory to himself ultimately through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He, he said this, John writes, to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, this is a really interesting interaction here. Because it's one of three times in the Gospels that God spoke from heaven for others to hear as well, from, from what we can tell. But, but I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says at the end of this interaction again, because he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, the phrase lifted up has at least two meanings. Number one, it can, be main, it can, be mean, or it can mean to be physically raised from the ground, but it can also mean to be exalted, to be enthroned, or as Jesus said, to be glorified. And so Jesus isn't just predicting his death here. He's, he's predicting the way he would die and how he would be nailed to the cross and that his body would be put up, raised on the cross for others to see, but he's also predicting that death wouldn't be the end of the story because he's predicting that he would rise from the dead and that would result in him being exalted and glorified before all men. Look at how chapter 12 ends because it's important. Uh, Verses 44 uh, through 50. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. You want to know what God looks like? Jesus is saying, look to me. He says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words." The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day, for I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. 
There's so much in those verses that we could unpack. One of the things I want to point out is that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record so many of the powerful teachings and words of Jesus, but the words I just read to you are what we know to be the final words Jesus shared in public. Because beginning in chapter 13, the attention is really going to focus in on the disciples and his last days with them. And with these words here at the end of John 12, Jesus acknowledges his coming death, but he also shows us that his death will provide a solution, a remedy to the problem of pain and suffering and death and sin in this world, and that this remedy is available. It's available to anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. You, you can look at these final words of Jesus in two ways. There's good news and there's bad news. The, the bad news is that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, my rebellion from God, in God, we are all destined to die, all right? But the good news is that Jesus Christ came and he died in our place, and through faith in him, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, all right? If we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just. Through Jesus, in him, our sins are forgiven, and we're invited to experience eternal life, which matters after death, at least the life that we know, right? It matters after death. But I want to point out also his eternal life is for today too. And let me explain this real quick and then we'll close. Look at verse 24 again. Look at Jesus' words. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is talking about his death here. He's talking about his resurrection. All right, But he describes his death being like a seed. I don't have a kernel of wheat, but I was eating an apple this morning, and I was thinking about this portion of the message, and so I grabbed a seed out of it, and I know you really can't see it, all right, but you'll just have to trust me that I have it in my hand. Here's what's fascinating about these seeds. I, I, I can throw it away. I can toss it to the side, all right, and it, it's really nothing more than debris, a piece of trash that the vacuum will pick up. I mean, it's just a seed, but if planted in the ground, something incredible happens. And I realize that's not an apple seed, but just hang with me. It's a good picture. So it's an acorn. But when I look at something like this, you've learned this in science. You've learned this through life. I see potential, right? That God created these seeds with the potential to produce plants that produce fruit, that produce more seeds, which produce more plants, that produce more fruit, that produce more seeds, and on and on and on it goes. That's what's happening with Jesus. Because what Jesus is explaining is just like a seed buried in the ground, Jesus will die, his body will be placed in the ground, but thankfully that's not the end of the story because God is going to raise him from the dead and show us that death doesn't have the final say. And that life comes to and is available to anyone through Jesus. That's what God is accomplishing in the life of Jesus. And not just 2,000 years ago, but today as well. But then Jesus, he shows us something else that becomes a little more personal. And you'll have to ask the Lord what it might mean for you today. Because Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's a strong word, but maybe a word you can study on your own. He says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. 
my Father will honor the one who serves me. See, faith and trust in Jesus Christ means eternal life, the promise of eternal life after this world. It means heaven, all right, on the other side of all of this. But faith in Jesus today is an invitation into a different way of operating day to day. Because with these words, Jesus invites us to follow his example by learning to set aside our selfish desires and priorities so that we, like Jesus, can take up the life of a servant and let God bear fruit through our lives so that others might ultimately find their way back to him. This is what God wants to do in you. This is what he wants to do in me and what he wants to do through our church. He invites you and me to know him. He wants to transform your life and mind. He wants to grow you and your faith and grow us together as a church family so that collectively we can bring light and life to this world. What does it mean for you today? Are you living for Jesus? Are you ready to grow in your faith and your trust in him? Next week, and as we move into John chapter 13, Jesus is not only going to speak very specifically to his disciples about how to live, he's going to speak to you and me about how to live and what that looks like at home and in your marriage and at school and where you work. Let's make it our intent and our goal to follow Jesus and follow him faithfully together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our Lord and Savior, that life is available to each of us through him. And we just pray, God, that what you might be up to today, you would continue in our lives this week and in the weeks to come, Lord, so that we might grow in our faith in you and grow together as a church family. And that through our lives, Lord, and as we become more and more dependent on the Holy Spirit and trust Jesus more and more every day, that you would bear fruit through our lives so that others might come to know you. That's our prayer today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.